If you think about what we know of planet Earth today, the way the tides rise and fall, what tomorrow's weather will look like, and more broadly, what environmental and climatic change is currently underway, much of what shapes our understanding of the world around us isn't from our discoveries in situ, on the ground, but rather what we've learnt from above, through satellite technology. The satellite is somewhat special because the fact that once it's put up into space and set on its orbit, it's very consistent, repetitive, collects the exact same data and measurements, and a lot of these satellite systems will last for long periods of time. The satellite has allowed us a unique handle on long-term changes when it comes to the environment with the data they provide steering some of our most important climate research, influencing the work of researchers like Alfredo. My name's Alfredo Huete, and I'm a professor here at the University of Technology, Sydney. I focus on using satellite technologies to monitor the Earth. The data Alfredo uses comes from a data portal, which is an online network set up by an agency collecting satellite data, such as NASA, to which they disperse out their measurements. It's almost like window shopping. It'll ask you, are you interested in ocean sensing, atmosphere sensing, snow, ice, vegetation, land, fires? What is it that you want? And, you know, you type that in and it'll give you a list of uh, available sensors that will provide these kind of measurements. Even in the last five years, satellite technology has made huge leaps in what we are able to measure and monitor when it comes to the planet. For CO2, then, that's quite an exciting area now. Europe and Japan already have satellites in orbit that monitor CO2 levels. But China, and in particular the US, with the launch of OCO2 in 2014, the Orbiting Carbon Observatory, goes a step further. Rather than just monitoring concentrations of carbon in the atmosphere, OCO2 measures how much sunlight is reflected off the Earth and then absorbed by CO2 molecules. That satellite is quite exciting because for every spot on the Earth, pixel by pixel, it'll give you a total column value of how much carbon dioxide molecules there are meaning how much CO2 lingers in that part of the atmosphere. And so that's a total game-changer. By having this image kind of technique from a satellite system, we now can see the column of CO2 right over a city or right over a volcano. And you actually can piece together where carbon sources are coming from, where they actually get taken up. And it's like a completely new game now that we can do that rather than just reporting that things are getting higher and higher and higher. However, as satellite data continues to shape some of our most pertinent climate research, more than half of the satellites currently in orbit restrict the use of climate data and remain not available to the public. And not only does this hold us back from making some crucial climatic discoveries... But a U.S. budget proposal for 2019 could see a massive cut to satellite programs that would have international effect, not only for researchers, 
but the global population. This is Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. When it comes to the data itself, satellites aren't only collecting information and measurements about the status of the planet. Satellites have a number of other uses for communications, navigation, but also for classified purposes. So the classified satellite data would be like the reconnaissance satellites or the spy satellites. This is Mariel Borowitz, the author of Open Space, a book about the importance of open access environmental satellite data. Environmental data is not classified or unclassified, as it's not particularly volatile information. Although with some of the alarming trends when it comes to environmental change, you could contest otherwise. However, Mariel says in the past, many countries have held their environmental data close to their chest, as if it were classified. There was a series of discussions in the 1980s as satellites were starting to be more broadly available and the first kind of commercial activity was starting. And some nations were concerned that with these satellites, it'd be possible for other nations to know more about what was happening in their own nation than they were able to, to have access to or they were able to have data about. As the use of satellite data grew, so did the security concerns, irrational or otherwise about how that data might come back to haunt them. You know, I think with any type of data, there is always some security risk anytime you release any data. Um, And it's really just on a spectrum, right? So even releasing something like bus schedules, right? Someone could use that in a nefarious way. Um, But I think most governments and most people determine, well, the benefits of making that data available to the public are, are better and, and larger than the risks. Um, and I think it's it's really that same calculation when it comes to satellite data. Most nations, when it comes to the scientific data, the, the type of data being collected by unclassified government satellites, um, have really come to the conclusion that there isn't a security risk to releasing that data. But not every nation comes down at the same conclusion. Mariel says it's the agencies, like NASA and NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the States, that have been pioneers in open access for environmental data. NASA data has been freely available since the 1990s, and it just has always been available to anyone that wants to use it. And similarly, the data from the U.S. weather satellites, it's also made uh, freely and openly available internationally. But it's satellites owned by the government that, in many cases, continue to restrict what is open to the public. Where are we seeing strict restrictions around the access to particular data collected? So you see that sometimes if nations think that there might be a security issue. So India has done that to some extent. They'll restrict some of their higher resolution imagery or certain areas of the more basic satellite data. That being said, the security concerns around collecting this data, Mariel says over time, have reduced drastically. A lot of times when nations are not making the data openly available, it's not so much that they are really trying to stop people to get it, it's more that they aren't willing to put the resources in to make it available. Ultimately, because collecting satellite data is expensive. 
depending on what the satellite is for, the data it's collecting and its intended duration. The estimated cost of launching a satellite sits anywhere between $100 million to nearly $1 billion US. One way governments have tried to save money in the past is restricting access so that those seeking the data for their research, for example, will have to fork it out. Governments are hoping to recover some of the costs of the satellite system. So the satellites are relatively expensive, uh, particularly compared to some other ways of, of collecting data. But what's become clear is when you ask for people to pay for that data... You don't generate a lot of revenue when you try to sell scientific data. And I think a lot of agencies over time have have found that, that they really weren't able to generate a lot of revenue from these data sales, and they really were restricting the amount that people could access it and use it. So you were seeing these um, really wonderful satellites collecting great data, and the data wasn't getting out there to the people who really could use it. Not all environmental data is locked up. The data Alfredo uses for his research, the phenological activity or the life cycle of plants, to the urban heat island effect, where a lack of vegetation raises the temperature of our cities. For these projects, he says most of the data that he needs is open to the public. As long as you're not so worried about centimetres. For example, the um, European Union has a 10-metre grid-free satellite product available that you can do lots with that kind of information. And what does that mean? What's that? So a 10-metre pixel size... It's big enough that you'll see every house for sure, but it's too coarse to be able to identify a tree. But if your purpose is to see if the city of Sydney is greening, regardless of what the types of trees are or how much grass there is in Sydney, then 10 meters is more than enough. You can see lots of things. You can see all the streets, blocks, neighborhoods, and so on. Much of that crisp centimetre data Alfredo was talking about is collected by commercial companies. Where, yeah, where you can maybe go as far as uh, see the licence plate. But as they're commercially owned, you could be... Paying $3,000 for a commercial image. 3000 for one image. For one image. That seems like a lot for one image. Yeah. And again, you would not go to these portals, you would just go to the uh, commercial vendors in this case. Alfredo believes, however, a researcher, or even shires or councils, would be more likely to fork out the money for data collected by a commercial company, as a one-off cost for a high-quality image would usually be worth the expense. And it's also cheaper than spending $30,000 to charter an airplane to do the exact same thing. (laughs) That seems quite interesting. Yeah, like the Terrestrial Ecological Research Network of Australia... Yeah, they contract out airplanes, for example, to fly what we call uh, LIDAR, where you're getting um, 3D reconstruction of the exact structure of the uh, surface, the trees and everything, the heights, diameters. And you can't get this kind of LIDAR detail from space as of yet. For those seeking satellite data, more often than not, they have the means to acquire what they need, to some degree. However, Mariel argues until government satellites make all their environmental data publicly accessible, the struggle for researchers is that their projects miss important parts of the patchwork. 
unlimited access to images from a NASA data portal can show you trends over a 30-year period, but typically at a low resolution. And an image from a commercial company can provide you that centimeter pixelation, but it'll put you way out of pocket. And it's only one image at the end of the day. Having open access to as much environmental data as we can, Mariel says, is what we should be pushing for. Do you think that there are any particular areas of untapped potential currently when it comes to what we could be accessing through satellite data, but we're not currently? Oh, that's a good question. I, You know, I think one of the difficulties with open data is that when you make a data source openly available, you develop the data for a, a particular purpose when you uh, first make the satellite, right? And when you make the data openly available, typically people find many other uses for the data that you may not have realized were there in the first place. And that can make it a little bit difficult to say in advance, you know, if you release this data, here are the other things that we would get out of it. Um, because part of what you want to do is allow people to experiment with that data and, and see what's possible. That said, I think there's a fairly large volume of imagery that would just give us kind of a richer view of the planet and more likelihood of getting images that are cloud-free that can show us places where we maybe don't have an image of that place at that particular time. And so it makes those long-term studies and and kind of climate studies and, and other things more possible. As we unveil more about the planet through satellite data, the devil is in the details. What might look like a standard photo to you or I... It's somewhat complicated, but yeah, it is basically output as an image form. ...is something much more intricate to someone like Alfredo. Identifying trends and actually making sense of the data goes deeper than just lining up a bunch of photos side by side. For the Orbiting Carbon Observatory, or OCO2, as Alfredo was explaining before, the satellite is, yes, taking an image... But it's going a step further than that, and making measurements across different spectral bands, sensing the levels of sunlight absorbed by CO2 molecules. If there's more CO2 in a pixel column, so it's a 3D column, then that means you're going to get less signal because more CO2 is capturing this particular part of the spectrum. Yeah, this is quite complex. The point is, actually making sense of and mapping out these images requires a lot of precision and expertise. And not everyone knows how to do this. When these satellite missions kick off, like OCO2, a new scientific team will be formed. So they'll actually, through grants that people apply for, based on your expertise in CO2, for example, they'll select a team of experts. Pooling together people from different research backgrounds, of which could include a team of up to 50 different researchers. You know, in some cases, um, when you're measuring something in the atmosphere, you have to worry about the aerosols there and what that's doing to your measurement of CO2. The role of fires, all kinds of things are going on. So by having this team of experts, they'll do the work of correcting the data, of figuring out what's going on with the aerosols, how to get rid of that problem in there. And they work together to get what they call these higher-level products. 
And what they'll do with these higher level products is actually generate a public version of the OCO2 data. For example, someone like me that's not an expert on atmospheric chemistry can use this with my research. To which then he could use for free, given OCO2 is a NASA-owned satellite. But ultimately, this brings us back to the same issue. How much this will all cost? The reason it's called OCO2 is because the first OCO mission was lost in a launch failure back in 2009. You're saying 50 people, that's a lot of resources going into something like that to then, you know, make that data discernible for the larger population. That's also, I imagine, a lot of money being spent on these sorts of projects. And then having the first launch fail, like, it's a slap in the face. Yeah. But then again, you know, the team is still remains in place and the team can still do work using aircraft so they're still busy preparing and I guess when that first one failed they know there's another equivalent sensor that it's just waiting for its turn to be able to launch again again this project is coming out of NASA so the idea that governments would pool together their resources and researchers to work not only in developing and launching the satellite but then employ a team to make that data ready for the public, many would say is too expensive. But as Mariel Borowitz argues, the money that is spent on this tech and this whole process should work in the best interest of the people, as it is money out of our pockets at the end of the day. If the data is collected by the government or developed by the government, then that data should be made openly available. I mean, these are... Satellites that are developed by governments, they're, they're built with taxpayer funds. And so I think if there is an effort where people are saying, you know, we want access to this data or we want anyone to have access to this data, we want to see the data being used, um, I think that really can play an important role. Up next, the US government heads in the complete opposite direction as they look to make massive cuts to satellite programs, including ones currently in orbit. This is Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. Back in February, the Trump administration released their budget proposal for fiscal 2019. The proposal was awash with cuts to climate research, where hundreds of millions of dollars would be slashed across different areas of climate science, renewable energy research, and climate mitigation efforts. Also, the phrase climate change only appeared once in the entire request, and that was in reference to the proposed culling of the climate change research and partnership programs at the US EPA. Environmental monitoring programs headed by agencies NASA and NOAA could also face potential cuts. NOAA's budget would be trimmed by 20%, which is equal to about $1 billion, bringing their budget down to $4.6 billion in 2019. 
and also proposed a 6% cut to Earth Sciences funding for NASA. I spoke with Rachel Licker, a senior climate scientist from the Union of Concerned Scientists, which is a not-for-profit body based in the States that brings together an array of scientists and researchers advocating for the crucial role of science in democracy. This chat originally took place on the 15th of June. How is the political climate moving into 2019? These budget proposals have been announced, but what is kind of stirring on the ground in terms of the likelihood of some of these actions being enacted? Yeah, so the budget for 2019 is currently being negotiated in in Congress, so it is a bit too early to know definitively what's going to happen, but we are seeing glimmers of hope. Uh, Just yesterday, for example, there was a congressional committee that oversees NASA and NOAA's budget that met and proposed restoring funding for NASA's carbon monitoring system initiative, which was previously cut and was something that the Trump administration had proposed cutting. Um, And that initiative does really important research to understand how carbon flows through our planet and how our land and ocean will respond to those kinds of human-caused global changes. So we saw that initiative be restored with bipartisan support in the Congress. And today, we saw a broader congressional committee meet and propose funding NASA and NOAA Earth Science at a far higher level than the president proposed. So We are seeing glimmers of hope that Congress is pushing back and hopefully will do the right thing. And in terms of NASA itself, Jim Bridenstine has only sworn in as the head of NASA in April. What happened there and how have things changed? Yeah, well, we've seen a very big evolution in terms of the way that he has talked about climate change both prior to his confirmation, prior to his nomination, in fact, When he was a representative for the state of Oklahoma, he made several remarks on the floor of Congress that were completely out of step with the consensus on climate change. And during the nomination process and the confirmation process, he, in hearings, would start to acknowledge the fact that climate is changing um, and humans are a cause, but would stop short of acknowledging that they are the primary cause And now, since he's been at NASA, he really has come to the point of accepting the full scientific consensus that humans are the primary cause of climate change and has really been very clear about the fact that he believes that science is important, that science should remain apolitical, and the work that NASA does should be under the direction of the scientific community and apolitical sources like the U.S. National Academies of Sciences. So I'm very pleased to see that and hopeful that that will really allow that kind of work at NASA to continue to move forward. Is it normal for a politician to come in as the head of NASA? No, not at all. Um, Most often a NASA administrator is a space professional. Oftentimes they are scientists themselves or were an astronaut. So it's very unusual and I believe unprecedented actually that there is a politician as the NASA administrator. And so how exactly you were talking about Jim Bridenstine had been nominated. What is the process of, I guess, electing the new head of NASA and superseding the one prior? Was it that they stepped down? What what led to this point? Sure. So the administrator 
for NASA is an individual who is nominated by the president of the United States. Before Jim Bridenstine was installed as administrator, they had what's called an acting NASA administrator, Lightfoot, who had been acting the entire time since Obama um, left office. And so the process for that is the Trump administration submitted Jim Bridenstine as the NASA administrator nominee, and then Congress had to go through a process of confirming him, which entailed a very long process leading up to his actual confirmation hearing and then a vote in which that vote actually turned out to happen along party lines with no Democratic support. It's just intriguing to kind of pull someone in with no specific space or space science background and thrust them into this position. Do you see his rise to be the head of NASA as an attempt to politicize the agency? I was certainly concerned about that. He had a very strong interest in space and space travel while a representative. He engaged on the issue quite a bit, um, really from that kind of space travel perspective. And then prior to that, he was the executive director of the Tulsa Air and Space Museum. So he clearly had an interest in it, but his background was largely political um, coming into the position, although you know he had been a U.S. Navy pilot and had that kind of aeronautics perspective, which was what some members of Congress uh, were additionally attracted to. But certainly I was concerned about the fact that that could politicize NASA and influence the ability of the agency to really stay on track with its work being guided by science and for science. And what do you think about the fact that given the States is kind of like the leading country in this space when it comes to perhaps not just satellite research itself, but just the sheer number of satellites that are up there, that has implications for other countries, even I would imagine researchers here in Australia of whom are dependent on, you know, United States funded satellites to have access to that information of which denotes their research. So this could have kind of international effect. Absolutely. The satellites that NASA and NOAA are putting out there and maintaining and collecting data from and doing research with, that's available to everyone. And so when you have those kinds of satellite missions being affected, the ones that are up there right now, the ones that are being worked on, and also new technologies that will pave the way for even more cutting-edge satellites in the future, that affects the research that the entire world can do to understand how the climate is changing. So it really is something that does have a global effect. The phrase climate change only appeared once. What do you make about the absence of that phrase within the request? It is a very, very clear reflection of where they are on the issue. They simply do not want to work on it from a policy perspective. I mean, the way that they want to work on it is obviously in a counterproductive, destructive manner of, you know, pulling out of the Paris Agreement, pulling back regulations that the EPA had put in place to regulate carbon dioxide. And so the lack of mentioning it is is definitely a reflection of where they're at. 
again, we know not studying the issue, not working on it is not going to make the problem go away. It's just going to make it worse. So that kind of denial and just kind of wishing it away isn't going to work. Today you heard music from Steve Mushrush, Queens Road, Martin Laflame and Ilo Kimblo. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SCR Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. I'm Jake Morecambe.